good morning. Today I will be reading from the book of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 and 8, concerning the resurrection. First, Mark reports, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they may go and anoint him. And then he concludes, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Hmm. Well, that seems a little different than what I'm reading here. Matthew 28, verse 1 and 8. First, Matthew reports, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And then he concludes, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So which one is it? Were there two women or were there three women? Were they emboldened and ready to share? Or were they frightened and scared? If it's a contradiction and the resurrection story no less, then maybe the Bible simply can't be trusted. Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well today. My name's Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free. If we haven't yet met, I'd love to connect with you after the service. Okay, who would like to come up and answer that question for us today? Got any volunteers? <laughs> I got the last one. How can you say Jesus is the only way to God? This is a tough one as well, isn't it? I believe in God, but is the Bible consistent? Are there contradictions in it? Can it be trusted? That's what we'll look at this morning. We're in this series in which we're looking at what we believe, that's our theology, and why we believe it, that's apologetics, the reasons for our belief. And I know a lot of people uh, don't do a lot of work in theology or apologetics, but I find it to be so helpful for the strengthening of our faith if we, from time to time, look at what it is we believe doctrinally and why it is we believe that. What I find is that it's kind of like a puzzle. You open up a puzzle box and there's a bunch of pieces all over and it's hard to make sense of it all. But then when you start to put doctrines together, you start to see a beautiful portrait emerge. And then you have a few different questions and you deal with one of those questions and you realize that there's good answers to the questions that we have and you see the portrait emerge even more. And you may not have all of the answers to all of the questions that you have, but when you put a number of them together into a single puzzle whole, even if you're missing a few of the pieces, you start to see this beautiful portrait emerge that's no longer fragile, no longer being held together by just a few pieces, but it becomes a whole portrait. And that's what we're doing as we seek to answer uh, six of the greatest objections to Christianity in this series, and in the process also teach a lot of really important doctrine related to our faith. Again, last week was, um, I, I believe in God, but how can we say that Jesus is the only way to God? Next week, you're going to be sure not to miss. It's the most frequent objection. I believe in God, but uh, how could an all-powerful, all-loving God allow so much evil to exist in this world? It's the most frequent objection to our faith. 
And today, I believe in God, but how can I know the Bible is true and, and trustworthy? It wasn't that long ago that the Bible was revered across America. Raise your hand if you remember that time, just 30, 40 years ago. I see a number of hands up. That day has long since passed. It wasn't that long ago that even deists and atheists and those who were agnostic at least respected the Bible and read it as great literature. And there was a recognition amongst people in America across the spectrum that it was the Bible that produced for us education and hymnology and some of the greatest literature that is available to us today. It is the Bible that led to great American movements like the abolition of slavery and the advent of universal human rights and the great American civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. All of these led by people inspired by the Bible. It was the great President Teddy Roosevelt who remarked, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. I still believe that to be true. You have a thorough knowledge of the ins and outs of the Bible. You will be taught what is the good and beautiful life. Well, today, not so much. We really don't believe that today. Many today say that the Bible, like most history books, was concocted by the political winners. And we can't ever really know what the historical Jesus was like. All of these teachings about Jesus related to miracles and his death and resurrection and claims to be Messiah, claims to be God in flesh, that was probably an invention of the biblical authors or an invention of later church fathers who were seeking to consolidate power for their own cause. But we really can't know what the historical Jesus was like. Maybe he was a good teacher, maybe even a prophet, but I'm sure he wasn't one to call himself the Messiah. Now, if you think this is merely academic, I know many of you have friends. I have a dear friend who I used to dialogue with about these issues on a regular basis. He remains a dear friend to me to this day. He was very curious about Christianity for a time. And then the end of his freshman year in college, he took second semester a literature class that was historic criticism of the Bible. And a secular Jewish man uh, criticized the Bible a lot. And he came out of that class believing that the Bible has many contradictions and it's not worthy of his trust and he's never returned to it. Many such, such stories, many similar stories as that could be given. In a nutshell, the objection is the Bible has many errors in it and therefore it's not worthy of our trust. I hope to defang that objection this morning. Two very simple ideas that I hope to present, two big ideas, and then there will be a number of lines of evidence underneath the first one. The first simple idea is the Bible is reliable historically and it's worthy of our trust. The second idea though, that we'll get to, the Bible is transformative personally and it's therefore worthy of our trust and our study. But first let's examine this statement. The Bible is reliable historically and it's worthy of our trust. On your outline, you'll see, if you take that out, five different lines of evidence 
for how I can make that statement that it's reliable historically and worthy of our trust. The first one is this, the earliest records related to Christianity all agree that Christians believed that Jesus was divine. You ask, well, why do we even make that statement? Of course they all agree. That's what the Bible says. But many people would say, no, those are later insertions. And so there's many English professors and history professors who have attacked the Bible over these past decades and argue that any notion of Jesus' divinity is a legend that was developed later. To that, let me share with you a few facts. The New Testament was completed by the end of the first century. Did you know that? It's totally complete by about A.D. 90. And most of the New Testament was written between 48 and 60 A.D. That's between 15 and 30 years after the events themselves. Look at the Apostle Paul. Most of his letters were written between 48 and 55, 56 A.D. Uh, The books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Uh, the, the, the Acts of the Apostles, which is the history of the early church, also written by Luke, written around that same time. Uh, in, in the intermediary years, but between the death and the resurrection of Christ, and then the writing of these books, the gospel writers relied on what is called the Jewish oral tradition. The Jewish oral tradition is this beautiful thing that because papyrus and paper and leather were in short supply, you had to retell the elements of Scripture orally and pass them down in exact form from one person to another person. And that's the way the Old Testament was preserved for many, many years. It was through this oral tradition and rote memorization. And there was great motivation to memorize the the scriptures because if you got a rabbi's words wrong, if you got the words of scriptures incorrect, the penalty was, you know what it was? Stoning. I'd call that pretty good motivation, wouldn't you? I'd be motivated to get it right if I knew that if I got the words of Scripture wrong, the words of God wrong, I would be stoned. So, the Gospel writer of Luke, for example, speaks of the detail he uses in composing his Gospel in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You'll see it up on the screen. It says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us. So let me just pause there. Luke is saying, other people have delivered the word to us. They were eyewitnesses of the word, and they were very careful in doing so. Then he goes on to say, it seemed good for me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So here is this great historian, Luke, saying, I have carefully investigated everything that has come to me, and I thought it would be good for me also to write an orderly account of what happened concerning Jesus. Let me just pause here. He's writing 30 years after the events of Jesus' life, such that many people he is writing to were alive when Jesus was walking the earth. And he's saying, if I get anything wrong, check my facts. Speak up if I get anything wrong. There are many other people alive at this time who could check and verify or invalidate his thoughts. He's inviting anyone to check his sources. The Apostle Paul, even more impressively, over in 1 Corinthians 15, 
is retelling a creed. Uh, There's a number of creeds in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul uh, passes down as he received them from other people. In all likelihood, he received them from the Apostle Peter and from others of the Jerusalem Council, maybe in two, maybe two or three years after the death and resurrection of Christ. These creeds are found in Philippians 2 and Colossians 1, and this one in 1 Corinthians 15, in which you have this basic information about the gospel truth and about Jesus in his divinity, which Paul received from others, and now he's passing it down. Just two to three years after the events themselves, he receives these creeds, and then he writes them into his letters. Here's one again from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6. He says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, what was given to me from the Apostle Peter and others, what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Do you hear it again? He's saying, I am writing down what you all know about and what you all have seen. And if I get anything wrong, go check with those eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ who are still alive. You don't make something up like that. You don't fabricate a legend that can be checked and refuted. Now, I know that some would say, well, Adrian, that's, that's all fine. That's all well and good. But that's the Bible authors speaking on the authority of the Bible or on the reliability of the Bible. Are there any non-Christian authors that speak to the reliability of your statement that all Christians believed Jesus was divine? Any of those? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Thank you. In fact, the first century historian Josephus, who was a leading Jewish historian of the day, said this of Jesus. Now, as I read this, remember that Josephus was not a follower of Jesus. He was not a believer in Jesus. And he says this about the early Christian community. This man was the so-called Christ, if indeed we should call him a man, in parentheses, Those may or may not have been the words of Josephus. We're not sure if that little parenthetical remark, well, were his words. It might have been his words in mockery of the early Christian belief because he was not a believer. But he goes on, and these are his words. For he appeared to them on the third day, alive again, the divine prophets having spoken these and thousands of other wonderful things about him. So yet again, here's this renowned non-Christian source that's saying the same thing about Jesus as the early Christian witnesses were saying about him. They called him the Christ. They called him the Messiah. They said that he died and then he rose again for their sins. And there are others, if we had time, we could quote from a number of other Greek and Roman historians who say the same thing. Raise your hand with me if you've heard uh, or if you read the book The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. A few people reluctantly raising their hands. Okay, I did. You don't need to be embarrassed, though, that you read that. It was interesting fiction. It was fantastical fiction. Some of the most fantastical fiction that I have ever read. And in it, 
What the author seeks to do, what Dan Brown tries to do, is suggest that this idea that Jesus was divine was invented by Emperor Constantine in 325 AD. That it was never a part of the original New Testament documents, but Constantine invented it to consolidate his power, and it was a later insertion into the Bible. But the early Christian teachers actually believed that Jesus was just a good moral teacher who happened to be married to Mary Magdalene and a lot of other silly ideas. In truth, Constantine simply reacted to the reality that Christianity had grown from a groundswell, this organic movement under intense persecution for its first three centuries. And under intense persecution, there was this, grand swell, there was this groundswell movement in which Christianity began to catch rapid fire and spread massively across the Roman Empire such that Constantine, by 325 AD, most historians are now saying, responded to the fact that Christianity already was the de facto religion of the Roman Empire. That it had replaced the paganism of Rome from the ground up, never from the top down, and Constantine wanted to side with a winner. Now here's the important takeaway. No matter how far back you trace the roots of the historical Jesus, you never arrive at a non-supernatural portrait of Jesus. The portraits of Jesus that we have from the pages of Scripture are reliable and historically accurate. Line of evidence number two goes like this. The New Testament includes too many embarrassing details to be legendary. Imagine with me, if you will, that you're making up a story that you wanted other people to believe. And that's the charge of many people against the disciples. They're making up a story that, other people, that they want other people to believe. Would you then make up a story that included all kinds of embarrassing details about yourself? Such as, okay, you're making up the story, and one of the stars of the story is a man named Peter. And what does Peter do at the hour that Jesus needs him most as Jesus is about to be crucified? What does he do? Anyone? He denies Jesus three times. And when they say, yes, you are a Galilean, you were with Jesus, what does Peter do? He begins cussing like the sailor that he is. He says, no, I wasn't with that man. Stop accusing me of being with that. Now, why would you include a detail like that if you're writing a story that is legendary and you're trying to make yourself a hero as you're seeking to consolidate power? No, you only include a detail like that because it was the truth. Or why would you include a detail that to the most important event in Christian history, that is the resurrection, women were the very first witnesses when, in that culture, women did not have a testimony in a court of law, and they did not have a vote. Why would you include women who didn't have a testimony or a vote to be the very first witnesses for the most important event in all of Christian history? The only reason you'd include that kind of detail in the gospel narratives is because it was true. Because it was the fact. And it was an inconvenient truth indeed, to the gospel writers, but they did not want to fabricate history, so they included it as it was. 
These details did not help the gospel writers. They indicted them, but they were honest to real history. Let me say it again. The Bible is reliable historically, and it is worthy of our trust. Number three, the canon of Scripture was not arbitrarily formed by the early church fathers. It was revealed to the gospel writers, to the disciples, by God himself. Uh, This is an idea that is under attack in many academic settings. Uh, The way it oftentimes goes is this. Uh, There were early church fathers who kind of invented which books of the Bible would go in the Bible and other books that were written about Jesus would not be included in the Bible. Here's the criteria for the use of different books of Scripture. It was this. What are the books that were closest to the events themselves? Proximity. Closest in time to the events themselves and written by either an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. Number two, which books were used by the majority of the New Testament churches? That is, which books were universally uh, being used by the majority of the New Testament churches? And number three, which books have theology that conforms, teaching on Christ that conforms to the Gospels of Christ? The books that we have in the New Testament pass all three of those criteria. The other books, like maybe you've heard of the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas, they're written 150 to 200 years later. And they include all kinds of ideas that show no correspondence to the historical Jesus written about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which came far earlier. The New Testament as we have it today was commonly accepted by the church in 200 A.D., It was ratified some years later by the Athanasian Council, but it was all carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love the way uh, the disciple Peter puts it as he's reflecting on the formation of Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit to use human authors to form the Holy Scriptures. Let's read this passage together from 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. Would you please join me? Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the way the Scriptures were composed was God used uh, ordinary humans, used their personalities, used their context, But then the Holy Spirit spoke to them and spoke through them. And out of that came the New Testament books that we have today. There's no accidents, there's no errors in the inspired, God-breathed Word. It is the reliable and trustworthy Word of God. Number four, many inconsistencies actually turn out to be the result of normal eyewitness accounts. If two people witness any historical event, they're going to come at it from different angles, are they not? Two different people looking at one historical event, one person will emphasize one lens that he's looking at these people. Another person might look at different people or different events. And that's what we see when you harmonize the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You think of these two resurrection accounts that Cassie and Michael read before the sermon. And uh, Matthew and Mark note a few differences. In Matthew, there's only two of these ladies noticed. In Mark, 
there's three ladies though, that were noted. So which one is it? Well, could it be both? Could it be that Matthew emphasizes two people that are more central to his narrative, whereas Mark seeks to provide a comprehensive view, just as we, if we are examining some scene, we may not choose to mention every person who was there. These can be harmonized. And what was it? Were they shrinking and cowardice, kind of scared the moment they saw Jesus, or were they bold to run back to Jesus? Once again, could it be both? That first they see something that is stunning. The resurrection of a dead person. Would you be shocked? I think we'd be shocked. And so maybe at first they shrink back and they go into fear and they're not sure what to do with it. But afterwards they recollect the very words of Jesus that he would die and he would rise on the third day. And they are emboldened in their faith in that moment and they run back to tell Peter and all the others. Could it be that both are true? And these details can actually be harmonized by the reality of two different witnesses sharing their take on the same event. A retelling of an event far from history, it's, it's never required that the speaker retells every, every single detail. What's required is the speaker would give the voice, the gist, the meaning, the intention of the original author or the original speaker. All of that had to be preserved as law from the Jewish oral tradition. Some of us have a hard time believing that all of these events from, uh, from history, from the life of Jesus, could be memorized 15 years after the fact and then written into uh, the Bible. But, you know, we live in a non-memorizing culture, don't we? We live in a culture where we uh, are constantly bombarded by information and so we don't uh, learn to memorize new data. But in the Jewish culture, it was an educational system that was based on rote memorization. And again, it, it was standard fare for rabbis of Jesus' day to memorize the entire Old Testament. Can you believe that? Rabbis would memorize the entire Old Testament. They were bathed in a system of memorization from their youth, and the smartest of them would become rabbis, and they had the, the entire Old Testament memorized. We have a hard time believing that in our day when we're constantly reliant on our phones and we don't have an educational system like that. But the human mind has incredible capacity for memorization. Now the expectations for one who was retelling a story or retelling an event was not that they would get it perfectly right, but they would be accurate with all the necessary details. That though they were fishermen, they would tell no fish stories. Okay? Any laughter? Come on. At a really lousy dad joke? Okay. They are fishermen, but they are trained in this school of memorization, and they are expected to get it right as it was through their personalities with no embellishment of necessary details. Now, line of evidence number five goes like this. There is far more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than there is for any other ancient book available to us today. The second best book in terms of manuscript ev evidence is Homer's The Iliad. Okay, the Iliad was the Greek Bible for the Greek people. And the Iliad has about 65 manuscripts available dated to within 800 years of Homer's original writings. 
Compare that to the Bible. Compare that to the New Testament. The New Testament has over 5,600 manuscripts available in the original Greek language dated to within a couple hundred years of the events themselves. Now isn't it incredible that many English professors, many Greek professors, many history professors believe that the Iliad as we have it today is totally reliable and trustworthy. And those same English and history professors do not believe that the Bible is reliable or trustworthy. Could it, believe, could it be that they don't believe it's reliable or trustworthy because of the implications that it would have on their lives? Could it be that they don't believe it's reliable because it would have implications on what they believe about whether this is indeed true and needs to be bowed to? The truth is, time after time, archaeological discovery after discovery has proven the Bible we have today is remarkably similar to the Bible that was written 1900 years ago. New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg, who was one of my seminary professors at Denver Seminary and was one of the most brilliant minds that I've ever been around, says this, no Christian document, no statement of doctrine is ever disputed by manuscript errors. We know with 99% accuracy what the original authors actually wrote. Friends, we have incredibly good reasons to believe that what we have in our hands here is the Word of God, that it's completely reliable, that it's trustworthy, that it is without error, and we can base our lives upon it, that it is true, that it has stood the test of time, and God has preserved it for us today. Can I get an amen to that? Listen, I mean, I don't want to base my life. Do you? Do you want to base your life on something that is false? I want to base my life on that which is true and has stood the test of time and can be verified historically, can be verified archaeologically. And you may not remember all of these details. I understand it's more like a college lecture today. But it's important to know that when your faith begins to waver, you are basing your life on the truth of the revealed words of God. The Bible is reliable historically and worthy of our trust. And then second, the Bible is transformative personally, and it's therefore worthy of our trust and our study. Taking away my academic lens for just a moment, let me just tell you, there's been no other book in the world that has transformed my life like the Bible. And it's not even close. There are no other words but the words of Jesus that have penetrated my soul. And it's not even close. I fear perhaps that many of us do not read the Bible in our culture today and even in many of our churches, not so much because we question its historical reliability. That may be a factor for you, and if it is, I'm so glad that you're here today. You can trust in it historically. But I fear that many people do not read the Bible today. Many don't study the Bible today because of spiritual laziness. We've succumbed to a 140-character culture. We want it in 140 characters or less, or else we say, it's not worth my time. And the Bible just won't be had that way. It requires study. It 
requires intentionality. It requires memorization. And as you get it into you, it transforms your life. It can change you from the inside out. It can convict us of truth. It can lead us to repentance. It can lead us to hope and great joy even amidst a world that is so full of such despair. So I just ask you, if you, if you want to grow in your study of the Scriptures, you want to grow in your knowledge of the Scriptures, what is your plan? Let me give you three possible applications. Uh, for many ages, the church has told people to study the Bible every year, to read through the Bible in full. Have you ever heard that? Okay, read through the Bible in full every year. And that just feels overwhelming to people. What if I just encourage you to do this? Read through the entire New Testament, one chapter per day, through the rest of the year. About 275 chapters in the New Testament. Over the rest of the year, you would get through the New Testament. And don't just read, mark through your Bible. Write, write down questions. Look at the cross-references. A single chapter is about one and a half pages. So spend 10 minutes studying a single chapter of Scripture each and every day, and by December 31st, 2017, you'll be mightier in the Scriptures than you are today. How's that sound? Not difficult. Or another thing that we can do is follow up from Sunday's messages. Take the life group questions in the back of your outline and process those with your life group. We learn best in community. And if you get two touches with one material, you will learn it more than only getting one touch with that same material, especially with a much denser message like today's. So go through it two times. And number three, perhaps most important, commit yourself to a steady diet of memorizing the scriptures. And you can. Do you memorize passwords for your computer? Anyone else? Back when you were a kid, did you have telephone members, numbers memorized? Anyone else? We can do this. We can totally do this. This is how I do it. I have verses that I write down on three by five note cards and on one side of the note card I have the verse reference this one's Proverbs 15 1 and on the back side of the note card I write down a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger mmm how much I need that in my soul and so what I do is I I write it down and then I put that in my pocket and I'll rehearse it day after day for two or three weeks at a time and after two or three weeks I have it in me it's in me it's made that movement from head knowledge down the longest journey on earth, 18 inches to heart knowledge. That's the power of memorizing the Word of God. It goes from head to heart. And to have it in me at the moment of need, when I'm about to respond in an unkind way to my, to my son. A harsh word stirs up anger, Adrian. But a soft answer turns away wrath. That's turning words into power. And the Bible will do that for us as we get it into us. We can do this, I'm telling you. One verse a month, 12 verses over the next year, you will be mightier in the scriptures. Take this quick look at this video from our kids downstairs and E-Free Kids, how they have memorized the gospel message in a single verse. Take a look. Here is what love is. 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 Here is what 
Jesus. 1 John 4, 10. Here is what love is. It is not that we loved God, it is that he loved us and sent his son to die and pay for our sins. Here's what love is. It is not that we loved God, it is, it is that he loved us and sent his son to live his life to pay for our sins. 1 John 4.10 Here is what love is. It is not that we loved God, it is that he loved us and sent his son to die for us and pay for our sins. Here is what love is. It is not that we love God, but that God loves us and sent his son down to give his life to pay for his, our sins. First John 410 International. Here is what love is. It is not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to give his life to pay for our sins. First John 4 verse 10. Here is what love is. It is not that we love God, it is that God loved us and sent his son to give his life to pay for our sins. First John 410, New International Reader. Here is what love is. It is not that we loved God, it is that he loved us and sent his son to give his life to pay for our sins. Here is what love is. It is not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to give his life to pay for our sins. First John 410. How about those kids, huh? Give it up for them. Have you ever been asked by someone, what is the Christian message? What is the gospel? And your mind is just kind of stirring. You say, ooh, I'm not sure how to respond to that. Okay, our kids just taught us. From one Bible verse. Here is what love is. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to die for our sins. Again, this is the power of scripture memory from a single verse to the gospel to perhaps being used by God to change another life for all eternity. Are we getting the power of the transformational word of God into us? I read an analogy a number of years ago, and I'll close with this, an analogy about three different ways that people tend to interact with the Bible. And it was a woman looking out her window at her flower garden. And she notices first a number of butterflies. And as she watches the butterflies, she sees that the butterflies come down and they drop onto a flower. And they stay there for but a moment and they fly away to the next. And then she looks out and she sees a botanist. And a botanist comes up to the flower garden and he has his notebook and his magnifying glass and he takes out his magnifying glass and he studies every last detail of an individual flower, sits in it for an hour and writes down the notes as he goes in his notebook to conclude by putting away his magnifying glass and putting his notebook under his arm and being done. Perhaps he has some information in that notebook and some information in his brain, but, but that's about it. And third, she saw a honeybee going out to the flowers, and she knows that the honeybees would find the perfect flower on which it would land and stick its nose down into a single flower and stay there for a while. Nose down, sucking all the nectar, sucking all the pollen that that single bee could get from a single flower. And she noticed that that bee would go in empty, and would come out full. 
each and every time. How do you interact with the Bible? Is it merely a Hallmark card? Is it like a butterfly that you go from one little devotional to another without really getting much of any in here or in here? Is it more like that botanist who only studies the Bible in order to critique it? Or is it like that honeybee that nestles our nose into the pages of Scripture that we go in empty every day and we come out filled, strengthened, nourished by the nectar of the Word of God each and every day. That's what's offered to us. Let's give thanks. God in heaven, thank you that you have given us your life-changing words. You have not left us without witness. We have the Holy Spirit, and we have the very words of God. They are not myth. They are not legend. We need not wonder if they are reliable and true for life. Indeed, we have so many great reasons to believe that they are true and historically accurate and therefore we can be confident basing our lives on them. Father, there are some in this room here today who, who have no confidence in, in the Word and I pray that they would review the notes from today's message and they would realize that this Bible is reliable and it's accurate and it's worthy of placing our trust in because it reveals for us the very words of God. And when all of life is changing, when all of life is shifting, we can know that we have something that is stable. Your words. And we can abide in Christ. And out of abiding in Christ, we can go out into this world with strength. There's others in this room today, Lord, that simply haven't developed the discipline of studying the Scriptures. And they say, I don't know where to start. And the result is they feel weak. And don't feel like they're equipped by Christ to go out into this world. And I pray, God, that you would convict today of one application for them to begin getting more of the Scriptures into us. For, God, we know that your words are living and true. They're able to pierce our souls. They're able to give us hope for all of life. So would you get us into the Scriptures, that we would be a church that is mighty in the Word of God, confident in all that you have for us. Thank you, Father, that you don't ask us to base our lives on myths and legends and wives' tales. But we get to base our lives on what is true, what has stood the test of time. And for that, we give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name.